Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org. Well, we're continuing this series on the problem with, and um, I know that I could have spoken on this. I love speaking on topics like this, and today's is a controversial topic. Um, Even I heard that some parents might not want their kids to hear this, but I'm going to tell you right now, your kids need to hear it because they're already hearing it in their schools, and they need to hear it from a biblical standpoint. And so in my search and reading, I came across this YouTube channel, The Beckett Cook Show, and uh, I started to read that and watch that, and I was very enthralled in his position. He wrote a book called The Change of Affection, which will be on sale. I'll plug his book for him, in the foyer. And just watching his show, seeing his testimony, hearing his approach, I said, let's see if we can get this guy. I'd rather someone who's been there, done that, can speak on something. And you guys will not be disappointed. I want to tell you, I'll say it now and I'll say it to the end. You need to come back tonight. Tonight will be the Q&A time. Now, he may answer some of those questions, but come back tonight, support that. And um, I think this will be a great time, being that this is front page news that you're seeing everywhere today. Um, The whole LGBTQ and the whole gay rights and how this all works into our culture Becca Cook, uh, a believer for 12 years now, he accepted Christ 12 years ago, he'll tell part of that story, but has some things to say, and I think you will enjoy today. So, guys, welcome Mr. Beckett Cook. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. Am I good? All right. Good morning, Horizon. This is very early for me. Um, So I'm going to tell you, first, I'm going to tell you my story, what God did. It's actually God's story, what he did in my life 12 12 years ago in Hollywood. I'm from Los Angeles. And and then I'm going to get into some kind of uh, look at some questions about this particular issue from a lot of different angles. So First, let me start. Um, Actually, let me pray first. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. Uh, I just pray that you would anoint me to speak, God, that you would give me wisdom. Um, And I I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, 12 years ago, I was a gay man living in Hollywood, and I was an atheist. And, but then I had an unexpected encounter with God. But before I get to that, I'm going to rewind back to my childhood. When I was in elementary school, in, I don't know, fifth or sixth, seventh grade, I started to realize that I was attracted to the same sex, which is a strange phenomenon to happen, especially growing up in the 80s in Dallas, Texas, and I grew up in a a Roman Catholic family, and being gay was very much frowned upon, to say the least, at that time in culture and in my family and, and according to my church and according to my friends. So I kind of, it was kind of like I had to lead this double life. On the on the outside, I was very social, and I went steady with girls in seventh and eighth grade. But on the inside, I, I was struggling with this, the, these desires and this, this, these feelings. So it was almost like this schizophrenia. You know, I had to like appear one way, but but I, I knew I was struggling on the inside. And of course, I couldn't tell anyone because you know it would just be uh, disastrous. So. It wasn't until I went to high school, I went to an all-boys Jesuit high school in Dallas, and I ended up becoming best friends with someone who was going through the same thing I was. 
And one night we were out and at, at a, we were at a club, actually. I was 14 or 15 years old. I don't know how I got into these clubs, but <laughs> it was the 80s. Everything went. But so we were out one night and we came out to each other. And that was a huge turning point for me because I finally had someone I could confide in. We could talk about everything. We started to explore gay culture together in Dallas. And again, I was very young, and we were going to gay bars, we were going to nightclubs, and, and I remember the first time I went to this particular nightclub in Dallas, uh, it, it, it was, there were gay people, there were straight people, there were, you know, tran uh, drag queens, as they were called back then. But I remember walking in to this club designed by this famous French designer, Philippe Stark, and I walked in and I was like, wow, like these people get who I am. Like these people get me. And so that was, that was a, a big, big turning point for me in high school. And then it, when I went away to college, the same thing happened. I ended up be, be, becoming best friends with someone who was dealing with same-sex attraction and we came out to each other in college. And so again, I had a confidant in college, we could talk about everything. I was still in the closet, no one really knew. And at the, at the time, in high school and in college, I never thought of being gay as my identity. I just thought, you know, I thought this is what I'm feeling right now, eventually it'll dissipate and I'll marry a woman and have a family and et cetera. But, so I, I never thought of it as kind of a permanent thing in my life. I was just going with my feelings at the time. And then it wasn't until after college, my best friend from college and I moved to Tokyo for a year <laughs> to try to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives, which is always a great place to do it in Japan. Why not? Um, so we moved to Tokyo and that's when things really shifted because uh, in Tokyo was... It was a strange thing because uh, Tokyo was kind of socially behind the United States t by 20 years. So being gay in Japan was very, very, very forbidden, very taboo. So all the, the gay bars were underground. Most of them were underground. And, but what's weird about that is when I was in Japan, I, because I was so far away from home, I felt so much more free. It, it was weird. Even though I was in a kind of a conservative country, I felt really liberated, so to speak. And about eight months into our time in Japan, my roommate invited his, his close friend from Texas to come visit us. His name was Adam. And so Adam came to, to stay with us in our tiny little Tokyo apartment, which was about the size of this rug. And um, <laughs> And, you know, he's, the, the, the first day, the second day, the third day, I was just kind of like, oh, this guy's nice, whatever. But by the fourth or fifth day, suddenly we kind of looked at each other and we're like, wow, like we're in love with each other. And so it was the first time I had ever experienced that, falling in love and falling in love. And, I, um, and that was a huge moment because... After that happened, I was, I, that, it, homosexuality became my identity. That, that's when the, the identity became cemented in me. And, and I, I came out to everyone. I came out to my family, my friends, like everyone I knew. And um, actually my sister, when I was in Japan, she wrote me a letter and asked if I was gay. And I, and I wrote her back and I said, you know, yeah, like, and I explained everything to her, and, I, and uh, I said, but please don't tell mom and dad, I'll tell them when I get home. But of course, she immediately ran and told them the second she got my letter. So, which I was actually happy about because I didn't have to do the heavy lifting of telling them, you know, which was an awkward moment. So when I got back home to Dallas after Tokyo, everyone in my family knew, and my parents' reaction was interesting, it was, it was great. My parents were believers. They were, they, my entire family believed very much that homosexual behavior was a sin. They, I mean, they absolutely believe that. They still do. Uh, so I knew where they stood on this issue. 
But my parents were so lovely about it. Part of it was, <laughs> I think I was the youngest of eight kids. So by the time my parents got to me, they were just kind of like, they were exhausted, you know. They, so, so when I got home, I, I, I walked into the kitchen and my mother was, my mother and I were very close. What a surprise. And, um, and I walked into the kitchen, she was sitting at the table and she started crying. And I knew why she was crying. And I said, Mom, what's, what's wrong? And she said, I know you're a homosexual and blah, blah, blah. And I said, Mom, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm, it's, not, it's not a big deal. And I just tried to allay any fear she had. Because at that time, uh, AIDS was, was very much a, a death sentence. So it was, sc it was scary. And, and that was one of her big fears. And... And then the next day, my dad comes up to me and he says, hey, Beck, I heard, um, you know, that you're homosexual. And is there anything that I did? Like, is there? And he listed a few things that, you know, he may have done as wrong as a father. And I said, dad, and again, I did the same thing. I said, dad, it's not your fault. This is just who I am. This is my, you know, I didn't say this is my identity, but I said, this is who I am. And it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. And, and then I was accepted into law school and to dental school, which is a weird combo. <laughs> but I decided to forego both of those things because I wanted, I wanted to move to LA with, because a lot of my, all of my friends from college moved to New York or LA. So I was like, which one do I pick? I picked LA, moved to LA to, to pursue writing and acting. And um, I had a little success in both of those fields. But it was always kind of a struggle, and, uh, and then I ended up becoming a production designer, doing set design for, for fashion shoots for like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and for, um, for brands like Nike and, and YSL and, and uh, The Gap, et cetera, et cetera, big brands. And so when I got to LA, I immediately had this group of friends already in place because my closest friends from high school, my two best friends from high school had gone to, uh, to, to college on the East Coast at these Ivy League schools, and, and all their friends moved to LA. And so I had this whole group of friends, and they were all, you know, there were straight people, there were gay people, and they were just very ambitious, they were smart, hilarious, and I really loved this crowd of, this group of friends. And we all wanted three things in life. We all wanted to make it big in Hollywood, which they all did. They all, like all, all of those friends of mine now run Hollywood. They like the content, the movies you see or the content you see on Netflix, if you, if you have that or whatever, they created that, they create that, th those shows. And, um, and then we also wanted to find true love, which I cycled through several, I cycled through five serious relationships with guys over the years in LA. And they were live-in live -in boyfriends. So it was very serious. And, and, and they all, all the relationships had the same kind of timeline. It was like a two-year shelf life. <laughs> and then they always ended after two years. And then we all wanted to have these great, the third thing was have these great experiences. Because that we thought, you know, this is what life is about, having these amazing experiences and, and knowing thyself, as Socrates would say. And, and so we were doing that in spades. We, you know, we, because my friends were in, in the business, they were writers, actors, directors, producers, and they were, and a lot of my friends were becoming hugely famous overnight. Like Minnie Driver was a close friend of mine before she was known, and then she, she, act, she was in Goodwill Hunting with Matt Damon and then became this huge star overnight. And then uh, Mariska Hargitay was, I drove her to her audition for Law and Order Special Victims Unit and she booked the part and 25 years later, she's still doing it, which is crazy. And, uh, and a lot, that happened to a lot of my friends. They just became these overnight, not really overnight, but they became these big successes. And so we, I was always invited to weekly movie premieres and to the Oscars, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, uh, the, the Grammys. And I, would, it was I was also invited to the after parties, the Vanity Fair party and the, the governor's ball for, at the Oscars. And, you know, I just, every, I did everything. I had dinner with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and 
I met everyone in LA. I was friends with everyone. I went to Prince's house where he performed a concert for three hours in his backyard. And I mean, it was, these were constant kind of events in my life. And I, at a certain point, the law of diminishing returns kind of set in. And there's only kind of so long you can sort of chase shiny objects before they become dull. And so I was kind of having this crisis, you know, like, this is really fun. I've done everything. I've, I know everyone. I'm friends with everyone. I've traveled the world. But I, I started to feel this kind of thing of what is life really about? Like, what's the, I mean, we all want to know what the meaning of life is, you know, but I, I thought there's no way for, for me to ever believe in God because I'm gay. And so I can't go that route to, to try to figure out the meaning of life. I have to look other places. So I went to the theater all the time in New York and in, in uh, London. And I thought, oh, if I go to these really serious plays by serious playwrights like Tom Stoppard and Harold Pinter and Eugene O'Neill and Tony Kushner, these guys are so smart. They're going to have some idea of the meaning of life. But every time I would go, I would, I would leave the play frustrated because it would come so close to the truth, but then it would just like evaporate. And I would leave just every time I would leave frustrated and like, what? What is the meaning of life? And, and I would go to art museums all the time. Every time I was in New York L or London or Paris, I mean, every single day I would go to a different museum. That was kind of my religion, was going to these museums. And, and I, I felt like, okay, this is, this is gonna give me some sort of purpose and meaning. And so things came to a head in March of 2009. I was at Paris Fashion Week. And I used to go to Fashion Weeks in New York and Paris a lot. I was always invited every season. And this particular year, I, you know, I was there. I went to a bunch of the runway shows. And then the runway shows, have most of them have after parties. And so I, was, I went to this one particular after party. I think it was Stella McCartney's party. And it was at this club in the middle of Paris called Regine. And, I was, I, everyone from the fashion world was there. Kanye West was there. The, the whole, and everyone was dancing, drinking champagne, having the times of their lives. And I remember I was sitting up kind of on a deck above the dance floor with, with some friends. And I was drinking champagne. And I, and I had this crazy moment. I, I stood up and I looked out over the crowd and I just felt this overwhelming emptiness. And I was like, this can't be my life. Like, I can't do this anymore. I've done this for 15 years or however many, I mean, since high school, really. I've done this for 20 years, chasing these things and going to these fabulous, quote unquote, things. And what, I, I don't know what to do. Like, what am I gonna do for the rest of my life? And I was, I was in, a, in a panic. And I, I remember I just left the party. I didn't tell my friends that I was leaving. I just ghosted, went back to my hotel, and I was up all night in, in a panic about my future because I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to feel any sort of sense of purpose or meaning in my life. And so I get back to L.A. a few days later and cut to six months after I get back. I was at a coffee shop with my best friend who is gay and he he and I we would every weekend we had the same routine we would go to brunch in Venice then we would drive across town to to West Hollywood or Beverly Hills and go shopping which is gay church brunch and shopping is gay church and our temple was Barney's or Neiman Market or whatever and um and then we would go to we would hang out at this coffee shop in Silver Lake on the east side of LA and and we one this particular weekend we were there having our cappuccinos as usual sitting outside people were milling about you know very crowded place and we're chatting and we're talking about who knows i we're probably talking about guys i don't know what we're talking about but we suddenly look over and the table next to us there is a group of young people probably five people, and they all had, there were five Bibles on the table, physical Bibles, just sitting in front of them. And I had never seen a Bible in public in LA. 
It was a shock. We, and my friend and I looked at each other. And my friend was raised in a Jewish home in New York. And so it, we were both just like, what is going on? Like, is this a cult? What's happening? <laughs> and so we, um, my friend liked to engage in controversial conversations. <laughs> he, he said, you know, he kept prodding me to turn or, and ask them what they were doing and to ask them what's going on. And I was like, no, I don't want to talk to them. And so, but anyway, finally, and this is like a Christian's fantasy come true. I, an atheist, a gay atheist, I turned to this, these, these Christians and I'm like, hey, are you guys Christians? What's the gospel? <laughs> and um, so they explain, they say, yeah, we're Christians. We, we go to this evangelical church in Hollywood called Reality LA and and I asked him, I said, what, is, what do you guys believe? I don't even, I grew up Roman Catholic. I don't even remember, like, what, what, tell me what you believe. And they did. And we talked for over an hour, and it was a really great talk. And, and of course, at the end of the conversation, I get to the $64,000 question. And I said, well, what does your church in Hollywood believe about homosexuality? And they, they just very bluntly, and they just said, well, we believe it's a sin. And what's surprising about that, I wasn't shocked by their answer, but I was shocked by my response. Because a year before that, or five years before that, or 10 years before that, I would have been like, you guys are crazy, and you need therapy. Like, you're insane. But because of that night in Paris six months before, I was open to hearing something different. And I had this moment of this kind of flash of, what if God does exist? I mean, there's a slim chance he exists. There is a chance. And what if homosexual behavior is a sin? And what if I've built my entire life on a false foundation and I don't know that? I mean, that's a possibility, right? And they, so they invited me to their church the following Sunday. And I said, I said, you know, I don't know. Just give me the address and I'll think about it. You know, I, I honestly don't know. So they gave me the address, and I had the whole, a whole week to think through it. And I kept going back and forth on this, should I stay, should I go, should I stay? And, and I, because it's a bit, it was a kind of a big deal. Like if, if my friends, if my, other than the guy who was with me at the coffee shop, if my other friends f found out that I was going to go to a evangelical, they would have just, they would have thought I was insane. They, they would have just thought, Beckett's lost it. Like, he's crazy now. So it was, it's, um, and it's also kind of like betraying your people to go, like, because in the gay community at that time, and, and probably now too, in the gay community, Christians, especially evangelical Christians, were the enemy. They were always the enemy. And so it was like kind of going into the enemy camp and betraying my people. So I thought through it that week, and I really didn't know what I was going to do. And the following Sunday rolls around, and I wake up, and I'm, I just think to myself, <laughs> I guess I'm going to go to church today. I don't know why. And so I get in my car, and it felt like a Tesla. Like it's, it like drove me to the church without me doing anything. It just felt like the car dragged me to church. And, um, and I, you know, I, I got to, it, it meets in a high school auditorium in Hollywood on sunset and and I I grew you know I was used to stained glass windows and smoke and vestments and bells and hats and so, so I wasn't I wasn't I had never been to an evangelical church before I didn't so I I walked in and it was just a plain auditorium like this and and I was like wow that's refreshing it's really nice that it's so simple and there's not all this kind of smoke and mirror stuff going on and I remember I walked in and I heard the worship music playing and I immediately cringed because I was like, oh, Christian music, I forgot that existed. That's so weird. This is so weird. But then I was like, wait a minute, it's nice, actually. It's beautiful. And <clears throat> so I walked to my, I sat alone. I walked to the front, near the front, fourth row on the, on the aisle. And and after the worship finished, the pastor comes out and he starts preaching on Romans chapter 7. He was in the book of Romans for two years, expository preaching, and he happened to be on Romans 7 that day. And 
I remember when he started preaching, I mean, he was preaching the gospel for like an hour. His, his sermons are an hour long, and he was just preaching. And as he was talking and preaching, I just, everything he was saying, every word he was saying, every sentence he was saying was resonating as truth in my mind, in my heart, and I didn't know why. I was like, what is this guy saying? And I was literally on the edge of my seat, riveted to the sermon, and I didn't want him to stop speaking. And even when after an hour, I was like, keep talking. Just what are you saying? And it was the first time in my life that I, I had heard the gospel, not only heard it, but understood it. And so after the sermon, he, he says, there's people on the side of the church in the, on the prayer ministry. If you want prayer for anything, you can get prayed for. And then there's another half hour of worship music, right? So so again, I had this moment of, should I walk over to the side? If I do, the people who invited me here might be uh, watching me. This could be humiliating. But I was like, whatever, I'm here. And so I walked over to the side, up to this guy and a stranger, and I said, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. And he said, okay, let me pray for you. And he, he laid hands on me when that was still legal in California. And uh, he prayed, <laughs> he prayed for me. And uh, I just remember thinking, how does this random straight dude, like, how does he care about me so much and love me so much? Because his prayer was so full of love. And, and um, I thanked him. I went back to my seat. And I sat down. Everyone else was standing and worshiping for the next 25 minutes. I sat down because I was just so overwhelmed by the sermon, the music, the prayer. And as soon as I sat down, the Holy Spirit went, and just God in that moment, in my mind, I'll never forget this. God said, I'm God. Jesus is my son. Heaven is real. Hell, hell is real. The Bible's true. Welcome to my kingdom. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yes, praise God. It was like Isaiah in the temple when he sees the holiness of God and he comes undone. I saw God's holiness and not only did I have conviction of sin, but I, just the joy of meeting Jesus, it was the, I just started bawling uncontrollably for the next 25 minutes, crying harder than I had ever cried since I was an infant, but it makes sense because I was born again in that moment. So I was crying and crying and crying. I was crying so hard that people around me thought they, they were gonna call a medic because they were worried about me. I was doubled over, just heaving. And, and then, I got it after the service, I got in my car, went home, and I got into bed to take a nap because I was so freaked out by the whole thing. I, I was just, I, I, would, I was just like, I couldn't even think. I was just so overwhelmed. And I got into bed, and it's like Moses when he's in the cleft of the rock and God passes by with his glory. It happened again. God's like, let me show you some more of my glory. And I was like, whoa! And I jumped out of my bed. And in the middle of my bedroom, I said, God, you have my whole life. I'm yours. I'm done. This is it. And, and I knew in that moment, I knew immediately, God had so much grace on me in that moment. I knew that homosexual behavior was a sin. I knew that it was wrong. I knew that dating guys was no longer part of my future. But I didn't care I, because I just met Jesus. And I'm like, I'm going with that guy. Good riddance to that life. And, uh, and that, was, that was 12 years ago, September, well, it was September 20th, 2009 at 2.30 p.m. And I'm still in shock. I'm still in awe of God's mercy and grace uh, that he just plucked me out of darkness and into his light. And I'm, I'm still stunned. And I think of Paul when one of the verses that really early on really resonated with me is when, when Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I count everything as loss. <clears throat> I count everything as rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's how I feel. I've, I've lost a lot of friends. I actually lost my career. In when my book came out in 2019, I, I lost my career because of my faith. And, but I count it all as, as rubbish, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I, it's, it's just, it, nothing compares. I mean, I could, I could literally live under a bridge for the rest of my life, and it doesn't matter to me. I mean, of course, I don't really want to do that, but you know what I mean. It's, it's just, like, amazing. So, 
praise God for that. And now I want to look at, these are common questions I get about this issue and common things that I have thought about this issue for, for a long time and for years. And so I want to look at a few of these questions and see how many we can get through. Um, and if we don't get through all of them, I'm going to get through all of them tonight. Um, but a lot of people ask me, <clears throat> you know, you know, didn't God create you gay? Like, why, why God doesn't make mistakes? You hear that all the time. Why, why is it a sin? Why is it wrong? And, you know, weren't you born this way? So, in terms of the born this way issue, just because Lady Gaga says you're born this way doesn't mean she's not, <laughs> she's not a scientist. She's a pop star. And, um, and no, one, no scientist knows the real reason why people become attracted to the same sex. Uh, there's, there's, there's three main theories. One is the genetic one. One is the uh, in utero hormonal one. And one is environmental like a distant father, an overbearing mother, blah, blah, blah. So those are the kind of the three main issues, the, the main theories. But no one really knows the answer. But the, the point is, it's a moot point. Because we're all born in sin. We're not only born in sin, we're conceived in sin. Because of the fall, we're all broken. We're all born. Every human being is born with sinful, innate impulses. And we, but that doesn't mean we act on those impulses. And so, it's all the fall. It's all because of the fall. And, um, and by the way, there's, this may sound shocking to you, but this, there's no such thing as a gay person. Their homosexual behavior has gone from, homosexual behavior has gone from a behavior to an identity over the last 50 years. And there's very specific reasons why that's happened which we don't have time to get into. It's, but it, and it's gone from a sin to a sacrament over the last 50 years. And so when I say there's no such thing as a gay person, what I, what I mean is that's a Freudian thing. That's a Freudian idea. That all comes from the 19th century father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, when he, he basically he says that, he said that humans at their core are sexual beings. So he was obsessed with sex, obviously, Freud. And, and so that's where we get the, this idea that it's, it's an identity, it, that it's, it's not just a behavior, it's, it's a full-blown identity. And when I was living that life, I thought, of course, I thought that was my identity. And, uh, but little did I know, there, that's, that's a false identity. It's not even, it's not even a real thing. Um, and so... Another question I get is, can you be gay and Christian? Now, there, the, the, the thing with this issue is, I talk about this in my book, is that it's, it's the same, in terms of sin, it's the same but different. It's the same in that it's a sin, and it's a sexual sin. Sexual immorality is, is in the, in the New, Test, New Testament epistles, is always at the top of the vice list. It's a, sexual immorality is a very serious sin. But the problem with this particular issue, this sin issue, is that it has become an identity. So there's gay pride parades, but there's not greed pride parades. There's not gossip pride parades or adultery pride parades. There's gay pride parades. So it's difficult to untangle that, that identity. But a friend of mine Right after I got saved, she, asked, she's, she was very smart to ask this question. She said, because I explained what ju being justified meant, and I explained, you know, what being saved meant to her. And she said, okay, well, now that you're saved, why can't you now go out? Because you're, you know, you're secure, you're, you know, you're sealed by the Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. Why can't you now go out and, and have a boyfriend? And... I explained to her, <laughs> I said, well, first of all, I'm a new creation in Christ. And so I, that's, that's my old self. That's my old man. I don't, I don't want to go back to Egypt. I don't want to go back into bondage. I, for 20 years, I thought I was sexually liberated. I was in bondage for 20 years. And so I don't ever want to go back to that bondage. I know what it's like. And 
And John, the Apostle John, in 1 John, he says, No one who abides in him in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then the last thing I'll say is, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And there are so many other examples of that in the New Testament. That uh, obviously, when we're new creations in Christ, we don't just, we don't continue in unrepentant sin. And, and that's, again, that's the problem with this idea of gay Christian. If you think that homosexual behavior is holy, righteous, and even and good, then you'll never repent of it. Why would you repent of something you think is good? <clears throat> so that's, the, that's the, the trouble with this issue. So the, the short answer is you cannot be gay. You cannot be gay and Christian. You cannot engage in unrepentant, sinful behavior in a, in a consistent way and still be a Christian. It, 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 it's like it doesn't, it doesn't work together. It's like a square circle or an elderly baby. It, it just doesn't work. And, and so uh, Hebrews 10, let me see if I can find that really quick. Um, yeah, in Hebrews 10, verses 26, the writer says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, so yeah, you can't, I, I, you can't continue in, and I know that some, there are some Christians, genuine Christians who call themselves, still identify as gay Christians. They use that moniker, uh, which I find very, very, uh, not only unhelpful and confusing, but damaging. Because I would never identify myself with a sin. Like, I would, why would I call myself a gay Christian? Or why would someone call themselves, uh, you know, a greedy Christian or all kinds of, you know, sins? Like, why would you call yourself that? I, that's, again, that's my old man. I'm not going to continue to identify as a gay Christian. So, I, when people ask me what I am, I just say, I'm in Christ. I'm united to Christ. That, I'm a Christian. That's it. And so, and then a lot of people, of course, I get the question a lot that, you know, isn't it unfair, Beckett, that you have to be alone for the rest of your life? I mean, isn't it unfair that you can't have a partner, a male partner to be with for the rest of your life? And I'm like, what? What? I have, first of all, I, I have a partner. His name is Jesus. And we have an amazing intimate, we have a lo, um, an amazing relationship. So I'm not alone. And I feel like, again, like I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I mean, I, I have a relationship with the king of the universe. And I finally know the meaning of life, which is incredible. I know where I came from. I know what I'm doing here. I know where I'm going. And I have eternal life. Like, what's unfair about that? What's really unfair is that Jesus had to be beaten, crucified, tortured for my sins. That's unfair. I don't ever, have never once, not for a second in these 12 years, have ever felt like my life is unfair in any way. I mean, I think of Paul in, uh, I think of Paul in, in 2 Corinthians. Where is it? He says, Yeah, Paul, you know, Paul's life was very difficult. Paul was single. Jesus was single. Paul, all Paul cared about was running around the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel, getting the gospel out to people. That's all he cared about. And I just love this passage. It's 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 11. 
Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, to, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So, <laughs> I just think of Paul's life, and I'm like, did Paul think his life was unfair? I don't think so. So I never, I've never felt that. I've never once felt that, and I never will. Um, another question I get often is, does God, doesn't God want you to be happy? Well, first of all, happiness is overrated. Happiness is fleeting. It's based on circumstances. I remember when I was in these relationships with guys, it was always this quid pro quo, this for that. It was always quid pro quo with these guys. It was like, as long as your career is doing well and I have good abs, then we're good to go. But the second you slip up, like, I'm out of here. So it was all, the, the relationships were always super conditional and based on very superficial things. And so ha my happiness was always contingent upon my circumstances. So if my, if, I, if my career wasn't going well or if my relationships weren't going well, then I was miserable and depressed. If they were going super well, I was super happy. So it was like a roll. I mean, I was on a roller coaster for 20 years and that was exhausting. But, but Christ promises joy. And, and I, I, have, I have this, I always say this, I have this kind of like, I feel like this rock of impenetrable joy in my gut. Like, so no matter what the circumstances are, that joy is always there. And, you know, it doesn't matter if I have a hard day or, you know, difficult time or whatever, that I have that joy and it, it's permanent. And so, so yeah, happiness is, uh, is, is way overrated. And by the way, the, all the apostles were martyred, you know, except John, who was sunbathing on the island of Patmos and writing the book of Revelation. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, this being a Christian and, and following Christ is never, he never said it was going to be easy. In fact, he said it the opposite. Uh, it was going to be difficult. But, um, and then people ask me all the time, do I still experience same-sex attraction? And I, I, my, my first response to them is, well, do you still struggle with temptation or sin? Do you have any struggles at all in your life? But... The truth is, before I got saved that day, let's say that my libido was at 100%. God, and again, God had so much grace on me. After that day, after the day I got saved, it like diminished greatly to, I mean, very negligible. And so while I'm not attracted to women yet at this point in my life. God can do anything. He created the universe. He could, but um, I'm happy to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Christ. I'm happy to be single and chaste for the rest of my life. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to do that. And <clears throat> another question I get is, isn't it unloving to to say that homosexual behavior is wrong. Isn't that, because in our culture that, that seems like something unlo unloving to say, that, you know, hey, that's actually, that's wrong, that's sinful. But I'm so happy that that day that those, those, that group of Christians at the, t at the table, I'm, I'm so happy that they were so honest with me and just told me the truth. Because it's actually, it's not hate speech to say that. It's love speech. When you tell people the truth, in Leviticus uh, 19, um, verse 17, <clears throat> it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. In other words, telling your neighbor the truth is loving them. Because if those people hadn't told me the truth, you know, I, I could have spent an eternity in hell. So 
I love that they told me the truth. I love, and that, that was the most loving thing they could do is say, yeah, we, we believe this is a sin. And, and so it's not, and, and it's not hate speech and it's, it's the actual, it's the opposite love speech. So, and the, I just want to talk briefly for a few seconds about the lies of the culture. Obviously, we know that this issue has become extremely dominant, especially in the last five years in the culture, LGBTQIA+++++. And I used to believe the lies. You know, in fact, I used to, when I was writing stuff in Hollywood, I, everything I wrote was gay-themed because I was in the dark. And you have to remember when you're, when you're watching stuff produced in Hollywood, everyone who's producing that content is in the dark. They don't know the truth. They don't know Jesus. So right, all of that writing and that content is coming from a place of darkness. It's coming from a, a secular humanist worldview. And it's so deceptive. And I always say, if you watch an hour of Netflix, <clears throat> you've just been lied to implicitly or explicitly for an hour. And now you need the, the, word, the truth of, of the word of God for an hour. You need to read the Bible because we, just like the Israelites and, and judges, were constantly messing up. And, and in the whole Old Testament, we need to be constantly reminded of the truth of God's word. And I always say we're either giving into the world or to the word. We're either giving into the pressure of the world or the pressure of the word. And that's why it's so important to, to be in the word of God. And, and the, another thing, too, is because of the because of the power of the culture, it's so important to stay in community, in the local church, and to be, uh, to, to sharpen each other, to, in, in the book of Hebrews, uh, it says to exhort one another daily. I mean, that, that uh, my, my friend who's a pastor in, in London, Dick Lucas, who's, he's like 97 years old, he's amazing, but he's like, my dear brothers, don't you know, do you realize what he's saying, the writer's saying, a Christian cannot go 24 hours without being corrected. Isn't that striking? <laughs> and it's true. We, that's why we need the body of Christ. That's why we need others around us to, you know, to encourage us, to edify us, and to say, hey, you may not want to, I, I see this kind of pattern in your life. You may want to pull back from that. Um, and so it's, that's very important. And just to to close on this, there, there's some other things that I'm going to skip over. I'll get to tonight. But some final thoughts on this. Satan has been lying from the beginning. He deceived Eve in the garden and it just by, by saying, did God really say? Did God really say? And he's doing the same thing today with this issue. He's blinding an entire culture. He's even blinding people in the church with this issue. Did God really say homosexual behavior is a sin? I mean, it's kind of like confusing. It's just whispered in the, in the Bible. It's not really, no. So Satan is winning this battle. He's not going to win the war. He's winning this battle, and he's deceiving so many people, and he loves it. He's laughing his head off all the way to the bank because he, he has so many in the culture deceived. And I talked to... You know, when I talk to, um, to young people who, who want to debate this issue, I, I'm like, is this really what, <clears throat> what you want to hang your hat on for the rest of your life? You want to just have endless, <clears throat> excuse me, endless debates over this issue? Like when you meet Jesus face to face on the last day, do you want this to, this, this to be your life? Do you want him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you? Like that's, those are the two options. And so... And I always say, to, when I, especially when I speak to young people, I, I tell them the world, and I'll close, uh, <clears throat> the world is going to lie to you for the rest of your natural life. And you're either going to believe the world or the word. Those are the two options. Believe the world, which will lead down a path of destruction, or believe the word, which will lead to life. So I'm just going to close with two verses that, I think speak to this. Uh, in Second Timothy, he says, Paul says, 
For the time is, oh, there it is. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And, and then finally, Matthew, <clears throat> Jesus says, I mean, this, is, this, is, this says it all, really. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So thank you for listening. It was a joy to get to dorm last night, had him over the house, cooked him some food, um, and just heard his heart, heard uh, his story, and I knew his testimony from watching him and reading that to see a transformed life. But the cost involved in that, because he's still living in Hollywood, he, I mean, he lost his job because of his now changed life, and, but now he gets to speak the truth. And he is a, a brave man for doing that. I, I want to encourage you guys. Don't miss the fact that just a group of Christians were gathering at a coffee shop having a Bible study. That when you're sitting there, you don't think people are listening and watching. And the power that is there. And the power of truth. They told the truth. They didn't weigh back from it. And how God can capture, God can claim a life, and God can lead them in a certain direction. And um, so, Beckett, again, we'll be back here tonight at 6. And we will have the opportunity, I encourage you to invite your friends or invite parents who maybe their kids are struggling with that. They can, you can text in your anonymous questions, and that way, when it comes to that time, um, you can probably learn a lot more tonight as well. He's going to be in the foyer. He's got some books called The Change of Affection. And um, I love his honesty when he says, hey, maybe someday God make me attracted to women. I don't know. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here to speak the gospel. And uh, he does that. So let me pray. Father, thank you for Beckett Cook. Thank you for saving him. Thank you for making him a voice. And uh, today, in a, in a dark world, and to a place that wants to emphasize certain things. And you still are the bearer of light. And I thank you that you're shining through him to show that. Father, uh, may your truth reign. May we not be appeased by the lies of the devil, but from the word of truth. And uh, we just thank you for waking us up, getting us here. So that means you're not done with us yet. So help us take advantage of that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You guys have a fantastic day. We'll see you next week.